we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Christ is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thank you, Roy. If you haven't noticed, we've been starting every sermon this summer with somebody reciting Hebrews six nineteen through 20, reminding us that Jesus is indeed a sure and a steadfast anchor. That theme is throughout our service this morning. If you're between the ages of four to the second grade, you're excused to kids club. Every summer when I was a kid, we made an annual trip to Kansas City. And from my perspective, we did it for two main reasons. The first of which is we, my, we and by we I mean my dad, wanted to give my mom an opportunity to shop in some stores we didn't have in Tulsa. And secondly, we wanted to take the opportunity every summer to watch the Kansas City Royals get beat by the Boston Red Sox. Those were the staples of my summer growing up, and I have great memories of watching guys like George Brett and Wade Boggs and Bo Jackson play baseball. Those guys were the classics. But the baseball stadium wasn't the only fun we got to have. Occasionally, we would venture out into the city, and one year, we went to Worlds of Fun, one of the amusement parks in Kansas City. On that trip... By the way, Google research tells me it was 1989. We happened to be at Worlds of Fun for the opening of the Timberwolf, which at that time was the world's tallest and fastest all-wood roller coaster. Now, I downloaded the video. I was going to show it to you, but it wouldn't attach well into my PowerPoint. But you would have gotten the, the picture of it. It A wooden roller coaster means that in addition to going up and down quickly, you shake and vibrate the whole time. It's a chicka, 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 chicka. I mean, there's nothing smooth. There's nothing still about it. They're loud and they're vibrating. The particular coaster begins with a long climb up, takes a short dip, turns a corner, and then plunges down right before it comes back up again. If you want a great story, I'll tell you after the service of my experience on that coaster. But the entire ride was full of ups and downs and bank corners, drops when you absolutely don't expect them. And while our experience on that roller coaster was real, it is also an apt metaphor for what it looks like to walk through a challenging season in life, a trial or a tribulation as the text would say in other places. And a roller coaster is the exact image that I kept seeing as I studied Psalm 31 to put before us this week. We are currently walking through a series in the book of Psalms, specifically looking at Psalms of lament, Psalms of assurance, Psalms that show us that even when we walk through the most difficult things that life has to bear, that our God will be with us, that our God is for us, even when we see 
And even when we feel and even when we sense that God has abandoned us, that he's still there. And friends, according to these Psalms, which by the way are part of the Bible, which means that they're just as inspired as the Holy Spirit as any other text, that they're laden with emotions. They're laden with feelings. And they're laid out for us as a pattern that we would know, that we could see that we're called to be free and that we're called to be honest when we talk to God. That we can tell him our fears. We can share our doubts. We can be honest about our anger, even our despair and our loneliness, even if we think he's the main culprit. You see all of these things in the Psalms and because they're inspired by God, it makes it okay. It testifies to us how we should then speak, how we can talk, how we can address our God. Our series is entitled, Our Anchor Holds, because it's in the midst of these storms that we need to be reminded that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, Hebrews six nineteen and 20. So that these words in the book of Psalm are here to anchor us, but more than that, they're here to give us not only our own anchor, but the resources to help us anchor others. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. That's a comforting promise, by the way. He comforts us in all of our affliction, but it doesn't stop there, continuing in verse 4, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What Paul writes to the Corinthians is we go through things, we endure things, and God comes alongside us and he comforts us so that we might be comforted. But also that we'd be resourced to comfort others. So whatever difficulties you've walked through, whatever challenges you face that God has come alongside you and comforted you in, God now wants to use you to comfort others. He wants to use that comfort that he granted you to replicate itself within you that you would comfort others. How might you do that? Well, consider what Paul wrote to the Ephesians and the Colossians. In Ephesians 5.19, Paul says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. What Paul says is, talk to each other in psalms. Quote psalms to one another. That we could take some of these same texts that we're walking through, a psalm like Psalm 31, and we would encourage, we could exhort one another with it. And in Colossians, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Listen to Paul. Teach and admonish one another. That's to encourage one another. That's to comfort one another with the comfort that you've been given 
here using the Psalms, even singing them to one another. Friends, as we look at this text, as we dig into Psalm 31, David's going to come to the same conclusion from the Old Testament that we get from the New Testament. That we're called to be anchored. And while anchored, we are comforted. And while anchored and comforted, he'll even use us to comfort others. Let's turn into Psalm 31 so we can get into this roller coaster text. Psalm 31, to the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame, and your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. As Psalm 31 begins, David cries out for help. You could see a picture. He's desperate, but he's still holding on. Consider his words. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me. Rescue me speedily. Save me. These are words of desperation, and yet they're also paired with, in you I take refuge. Be a strong rock of refuge. You see this place where he's desperate, but he's barely hanging on. These are the texts that God gives us to give us a vocabulary for life, some feeling to say, if you've ever been here, to be in a place where you feel so desperate about a situation, you're longing for resolution and you're barely hanging on. David says, I know what that's like. He writes Psalm 31. Try your best to hold on, trying to hold it all together, one moment confident, the next moment falling apart. That's David in this psalm. You should know by context, we don't know much of his situation, but we do get several clues as we walk through the psalm. Verse 9 will tell us that he's in distress, that he's wasting away from grief. Verse 11 will talk of his adversaries, noting that because of them, he's become a reproach to his neighbor, an object of dread to his acquaintances, pushing it so far as to say that even people on the street are avoiding him. He's going through some hard stuff. Verse 12, he claims he's been forgotten. Verse 13, he says that they are scheming together against him, and they are plotting to take his life. Whatever it is that David's specifically going through, he's being rejected completely and entirely, and he is feeling it. Now, I have no idea what this might look like in your life, but I know there are times we get there. And what we see here in this psalm is that David is overwhelmed in pain and loneliness, and his situation is filled with the extremes of dire. And yet even in the midst of that, David remains anchored. That's our encouragement. That's why we come to these texts. Because as you walk through this text, as we move through it and see the highs and lows that make this a roller coaster text, you'll find that as we move through this text, even though it drops, it picks up. And it picks up in the end. 
and it lands firm, even exhorting others to confidence in the Lord. Let's keep moving on, verse 3. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Now as we move through this, I'm not going to dig into the wording so much as I just want you to feel this psalm, because I think this is a feeling psalm. You can see here, even in 3 and 4, David trending upward. He's trending towards belief. He's appreciating that God is his rock, that God is his fortress, that he's been pulled from the net. And he stays up through verse 8, verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. You see a sense of stability in David that we don't get at the beginning. We see David starting low and he comes up to appreciate a foundation that he has and God and God holding him, God carrying him. And in the very next verse, we see him fall. Verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances, Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me and as they plot to take my life. Now if we wanted to, we could paint a picture of David as a drama queen. Painting these enormous pictures of despair, but my guess is he's feeling these things. And they are very real to him. This rejection that he feels, this wasting away from grief. That these are real and raw emotions that he's owning up to and that he's putting before God the Father. He's confessing his position. Which is to say, church, he doesn't have to have his act together. He doesn't have to be all tidy before the Lord. Friends, we've done a huge disservice to each other to fall into this idea that we have to have our acts together before we approach God. Because we don't. God sees us for who we are. He sees us for what we're walking through. Why would we not choose honesty? So in this psalm where, where David starts, hey, everything's great, things stink, things are getting better, they're stinking again, that we can look at this kind of movement and think he's not grounded. Why is he not holding firm? 
And in those moments, I would just suggest to you, it's because you're not struggling. For in these moments when you struggle, like David is in this text, that's when you get all over the map. That's when it's easy to trust God in one moment and easy to struggle in the next. But what we find here as we continue into this text is that David finds his anchor in verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. David finds a firm place to put his foot on and it's no longer his emotions. We see him feel his way through this text. And on 14, he lands on solid ground saying, I trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. What David starts to confess here is, it doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter who has done what. It doesn't matter how I feel about my situation. What matters is that I've trusted you. What matters is that you are God. That's where he lands in this text. It's the most crucial anchor in the world and it changes everything for him. See, in doubt and trial and struggle, when we're feeling all kinds of things, this is the place we get called to to center us. My feelings aren't God. What I'm walking through, my struggles, my trials, they're not my God. Friends, we could be defined by all kinds of things, but what we're called to be defined by is Him. Not us, or our trials, or our struggles, or our temptations. It's in Him. So we see in verse 15 how this changes how He talks. Verse 15, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me be put, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. And what I want you to see most significantly from verse 13 to verse 14 is David's perspective. For if you had a Bible open, and I, should, I could show you all the text again, and you look back at verse 9 to 13, there are like 17 personal pronouns referring to me, referring to my Referring to this is happening to me. This is my life. This is my, 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 my. This is my strength. And by the time you get to verse 14, it starts to shift to you. The entire focus of the text changes to what's happening to me, to who are you and what are you doing. See, that is that crucial step to trusting God, to understanding that he is sovereign, that he is in control. It says, my trust is in you. I'm in your hand, on your servant. It's about your steadfast love. And what you see is that David's eyes are no longer on the waves. 
but now firmly placed on the one who created the sea. His perspective shifted. It changed. That was his foundation. That's his anchor. It's not just about confession. You'd see even in 15 to 18 emotions coming out. I mean, imagine that just for the second, that we would gather together as a church and sing, let the wicked be put to shame, let them go silently to Sheol. I mean, that means let them go to hell. He's still feeling, but he's feeling in a place where he's centered on who God is. He's centered on what God has done. And on God's faithfulness, he's putting it in God's hand. Continues in verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Now, if you were to study through this psalm and we look back to verse 14 and carrying forward, you would see that his situation has not changed. His adversaries have not let up. Those on the street are no doubt still fleeing from him. What changed was his perspective. That's what made the difference. He stopped looking at the waves. He stopped being identified by his challenges. And he recognized God was in the midst of it. He was anchored. Now as he closes this psalm in verse 23, you see the full picture of God's comfort as he now exhorts you, the reader of his psalm. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly replays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. He encourages you. He encourages you to find yourself in him. He encourages you to wait for the Lord. For even if you look back through 19 through 22, he walks you through how God was with him when he was hiding. How God stored him in a shelter How God showed him his steadfast love and even when he thought he was invisible to God, God heard his voice. He exhorts you and comforts you with that. Friends, if we read through and consider Psalm 31 this morning, there are three things that I want you to walk away with from this psalm. The first of which is this. I want you to see and be encouraged by the roller coaster that David, a man after God's own heart, went on. I say that because sometimes we can believe 
that we have to be solid, that we have to be firm, that we have to be steady if we're believers. And yet with all practicality, that is not the picture of faith that you see put forth in the Psalms and God's inspired word. Now, sometimes there's doubt. Sometimes there's distrust. Sometimes there is fear, real fear. And don't get me wrong, I'm not telling you to give in and live in distrust, doubt, and fear. But I want us to recognize that sometimes when the earth trembles, we're allowed to feel it. That it's okay to hurt, to feel, and to struggle. This text then encourages us, in the midst of those things, to confess them to God the Father. And to be moved towards God the Father. And in the midst of that, to be reminded that he's sovereign over all things. That's what prayer does for us. It moves us from a self-focus to a him-focus. To see where he is in the midst of it. And secondly, I want you to see the encouragement that David receives, not when he's out of the storm, but when he's still in the midst of it. Because I want us to see this picture that David, even in the midst of a trial, starts to see and realize the sufficiency of the Lord for his trials. And it's more than enough for him. Because the psalm doesn't resolve David receives comfort and immediately seeks to give comfort. That's why 23 and 24 are there. It puts feet to what Paul was teaching in 2 Corinthians 1. That David was comforted. And he immediately exhorts fellow believers to be comforted in the sufficiency of the Lord. And finally, I want to encourage and exhort you to see the difference that perspective makes. Several times as we walk through this series, have I alluded to Matthew 14, when Peter walks on the water to see Jesus only to be distracted by the waves and sink. And that's exactly what happens in this psalm, but in reverse. David is sinking because he's looking at the waves. And doesn't begin to raise until he picks up his eyes and sees the Lord. Friends, as we wrap up this morning, I want you to see that much of these same themes are echoed in the New Testament. And I want to quickly point us to 2 Corinthians 4 to see it. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What Paul does here for the Corinthians is to remind them that they're fragile, that they're weak, that they chip, that they fall apart, that they will break. And that the hope of this life is not the power that is found in us. No, that power will always let us down. It will not be sufficient You're a jar of clay. You're not titanium. The power that we live by is not ours, but it's his. 
What Paul does in this text is push us to know that when we live in our sufficiency, we fall apart. But when we live in his sufficiency, we're held together. So he pushes it further in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Friends, what he does here is he paints the picture of the life of a believer. This is Jesus telling us that we'll have tribulation in John 16, 33. That you will be afflicted in every way. Which means for all of us, our bodies will fail us. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter what you eat. Blueberries won't be your salvation. Your body will fail you. You'll be crushed. I'm sorry, (laughs) but not crushed. You'll be perplexed, but not driven to despair. You'll be persecuted. We will face and endure all kinds of challenges from a world that doesn't recognize God, from Satan who actively opposes him. And yet... We have Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies, that our hope would be him, that our hope would be in his sufficiency, that he is indeed enough to anchor us, that he is enough to carry us through every storm. That's why Paul concludes here in several verses later in 15 by saying, for it is all for your sake So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. That your body is to be put on display so your sufficiency isn't preached, but his sufficiency is preached. That people would see the sufficiency of Christ in you and that grace would be extended to more and more and more. That people would ask and wonder, how did you walk through that? And the answer would be Jesus. And they'd be encouraged. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, as you walk through the storms of life, if you are there, be reminded that you have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, and his name is Jesus. Be reminded that you have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Be reminded that we cling to Jesus Christ because he alone is sufficient And you weren't asked to be. For we are jars of clay. And so we testify to a surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. We testify so that the grace could extend more and more to people. And we don't lose heart. 
because we know that he's renewing us day by day by day. And we don't lose heart because we know that this is a light momentary affliction. And someday, someday, literally a billion years from now, it will not matter what you walk through today. That's our great hope in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Oh, great Father in heaven, we thank you that you endured a trial, that you sent your son to the cross, and that Jesus went willingly to the cross to die in our place to grant us salvation so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could know you, so we could have a relationship with you. Thank you that in salvation we belong to you. Thank you that in salvation we're anchored to you. So that regardless of what we walk through, we can cling to you in all things. Thank you that you are sufficient in all things. And thank you for making us weak enough to not be sufficient on our own. Though I do not like my flesh, I do not like my earthiness, I do not like the ways that I struggle and fail. Thank you for granting us those weaknesses that we'd always be pointed to you. Father, may it be that our friends, may it be that our family, may it be that those around us see the sufficiency of Jesus Christ lived out in our lives. That it would be him that we testify to, to his power, to his willingness to save us and to carry us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.